The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. So today I'm very excited to have as my guest, Michael Carroll, and we will be discussing Buddhism and modern capitalism. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Michael. He is a thought leader, executive coach, author, and COO of Global Coaching Alliance. His critically acclaimed books, Awake at Work, The Mindful Leader, and Fearless at Work, are must-reads for anyone desiring a sense of well-being in their workplace. Michael has been studying Tibetan Buddhism since 1976, and over his 30-year business career, Michael has held executive positions with Sherman Le- Shearson Lehman, American Express, Simon & Schuster, and the Walt Disney Company. He presently coaches, consults, and lectures for major corporations and educational institutions all over the globe. So, Michael, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So my understanding of Buddhism, it is, it's all about non-attachment, living in the present moment. And business seems to be driven by, by a desire for things, goods and services, and planning for the future. So why does The Economist magazine and the American Enterprise Institute consider Buddhism to be a defining model for leading our modern-day global organizations? Yeah, well, there's a lot there in that question. The the notion of, in Buddhism, clearly non-attachment is something that has been taught for centuries. And it's it's something that in the West, I think, we identify uh, with Buddhism uh, as the idea of rejecting our experience rather than fully engaging it. Mm. Uh, part of the notion of non-attachment is not so much rejecting our experience and sort of moving away from our lives, but it's being able to authentically engage our lives, not from the point of trying to um, collect our experience or protect ourselves from our experience, but to touch it authentically. So um, from that point of view, I think uh, Buddhism is uh, becoming... uh, uh, something that actually the practice of meditation to a great degree is something that business leaders and business people in general are becoming um, um, interested in because it helps us engage work 
uh, not from the point of view of, of, of being threatened by it or frightened by it or concerned about it, but actually being able to have a, an honest and authentic relationship with it. And so would that mean that we would be, let's say, when we're related uh, to creating a new product, we would just focus on that, be present with the idea of creating it, rather than maybe <clears throat> living in the future of owning it or selling it or whatever? Does that, right. does well, that make I, sense? Okay. I hear you. I, I think the issue here is... To, to kind of keep it simple, so to speak, is, is there's really two parallel agendas that we bring to work, whether we're doing product development or selling something or, you know, putting in a new technology system or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Well, there's two basic agendas. One is a very functional, technical, and content-driven agenda. Uh, in terms of product development, I work with a lot of scientists who, who, do, who work with uh, molecules and compounds in clinical studies. It's very technical. It's, it's a scientific process. You've got to be very disciplined there. That's the one agenda. The second agenda is emotional. Mm. Uh, and we come to the work challenge from the point of view of wanting to succeed, wanting to um, uh, have good relationships with our clients and our colleagues uh, there's a passion about our work we also uh, anticipate potential calamities and are hesitant all of those emotions when if un- misunderstood often drive the agenda uh, in, a, in a way that we're unaware mm-hmm. so from the point of view one of the issues with, with uh, bringing mindfulness or Buddhist principles to the workplace is to actually bring these emotions, let's, let's acknowledge and recognize that emotions are extremely important and very intelligent part of our job, and uh, cultivate a healthy environment where these emotions are about well-being. And when properly understood and those two, those two agendas merge, the technical agenda and the emotional agenda, you have a really inspired workplace. So if someone is saying, I won't be happy until I get this position or this amount of money, how would Buddhism, how would, how would someone in that position benefit from practicing Buddhism uh, well, or meditation? First thing you would, at least from my vantage point, I think other Buddhists may have different, different views on this, but the first thing I would suggest to the person is that if you're trying to achieve happiness at the workplace, the likelihood is you're going to be disappointed very soon. Mm. <laughs> so, well, so what's the contrast, I guess? Well, I think the issue is uh, really we come to what I would encourage people to begin to, and I think the practice of mindfulness meditation points out, is that you know if we're really honest about our experience at work, sometimes it's happy, sometimes it's miserable. Sometimes we mm. feel we're being rewarded, other times we feel we're being... Uh, disadvantaged. Sometimes we feel embraced and uh, supported. Other times we feel disenfranchised. This is the nature of work. It's frankly the nature of our experience. So the issue isn't so much we come to work wanting to be happy. When we really look carefully at it, we all want to come to work being confident. Mm -hmm. Confident that we can engage whatever is occurring from a place where we're comfortable with who we are which isn't always a happy experience. Uh, So the confidence, 
it's it's kind of like if you're playing uh, a sport, if you're a great uh, golfer or a great uh, tennis player, you know, it isn't it isn't necessarily happiness we're looking for. We're looking for a sense of what I call fearless harmony with our experience, a sense of accomplishment and vision and uh, a freshness and confidence about our experience that we're that really motivates us. And, and, and the practice of uh, many of the Buddhist principles and the practice of mindfulness awareness meditation is all about rediscovering those natural qualities of who we are. Okay, so this person who may think they're only going to be happy if they get such and such by practicing Buddhism might be able to actually notice during the day or even within an hour that they're really having a good time and then other times they're stressed but or or upset but that they're it's more validating those emotions when they're happening is that exactly. more accurate yeah exactly these there's the healthy emotions are not just chasing after happiness <laughs> right. right yeah so in um you talk. You have an article in Fast Company magazine, which I think is really interesting, where you talk about some of these principles, and you say that empathy, empathy can pave the way for innovation. And innovation is so important today because many new inventions are becoming commodities very quickly. So, can you talk a little bit about how empathy helps us innovate? Maybe give an example. Sure. Sure. Um... Yeah, I mean, it, it. You know, again, I do a lot of executive coaching and leadership coaching, and this is a, a very common uh, situation in organizations. Uh, but essentially, you know, when we think of innovation, you know, we think of, you know, uh, breakthrough ideas, uh, you know, a clever repositioning of a product or or service that we presently have to grow a market. Uh, you know, a, a new uh, a new uh, technology that sort of scales an idea quickly, whatever it happens to be, all beautiful stuff, and we're seeing so much of it now in in, in our in our world that it's actually mind boggling. <laughs> yeah. You know, but the issue of empathy and innovation, and by the way, they chose the word empathy. Um, I tend to use the word resonance, but empathy is perfect. Mm-hmm. Is that you can have a great idea, but if you cannot socialize that idea to diverse constituencies, the likelihood of it getting implemented is very, very low. Mm-hmm. And what you find in cultures uh, like Google or certain really good biotechs is that the people who have really great ideas also know how to socialize and build alliances around it. So. You know, the classic example is, you know, a a young man or woman who has a new startup business, and they're in the room, and there's two bankers in the room. There's a, uh, you know, a a potential buyer in the room. There's a a CFO, uh, some technology people, uh, you know, eight people in the room, all having different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Well, your ability to emotionally uh, engage each one of those perspectives, which are very diverse and having different agendas, requires a level of emotional sensitivity where you can actually get inside their skin and see what their priorities are, see how they see the, the opportunity or the disadvantages. 
and, and pitch them and appeal to them and to get into a conversation that appeals to diverse constituencies. This kind of emotional sensitivity, or what is broadly called social intelligence, is a natural outcome of the sitting meditation. Wow, that's really interesting. So have you had examples of people where you've coached them to meditate and they've actually been able to tap into more empathy or, or have more resonance? Yeah, absolutely. Again, th- this ability to be resonant is very natural. It- it's mm-hmm. not as if it's like not human, <laughs> you know. <sighs> Typically what you find is the reason why we're not able to resonate well or to listen well or to empathize well or to accurately pick up on someone else's emotion, or ask a question that is probing at the right time, at the right place, to the right person, is because we're not in touch with our natural qualities. Well, or even in touch with our own emotions. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you mentioned Google and and some of the good biotech. So I know at Google and a lot of the technical companies, they have an atmosphere and actually rooms where people can play games together and there's just a lot of I think really interesting ways that people socialize so I would think this would be a space where people could open their hearts a little bit and and really bond with people and that would improve resonance as well right yeah well yeah there's a there's a real irony in the technology businesses where I think they are leading the way, Google being one of them, about this kind of training. I mean, they have that program, uh, Search Inside Yourself, uh, which is taken off there. Uh, yet, at the same time, if you spend time on the Google campus or other you know, high-tech high businesses, everyone's relating with a device. You know? Oh, okay. through a tool right now. They're always, they're always addicted to their, no, I shouldn't say addicted, but because they work hard and they're smart people and they're good at what they do. But they're mm-hmm. very device oriented. So the ability to lift your head up and get into the, the, the qualities of the human engagement is always a challenge in those environments. Yeah, and I remember reading an article in the Harvard Business Review back when I was working on my book. Um, business intelligence success factors and it was related to how to engage people and they said that if a manager feels empathy for anyone but they were giving the example of one of their direct reports that their mirror neurons actually sync up Mm -hmm. I found that so interesting that they're being able to prove this with science Um, and so well that's very uh, that's where I have a lot of how would you say, subtle difficulty with the way science is doing things. I think it's great <laughs> that science is able to, you know, point out that mindfulness and all of this is healthy, et cetera, et cetera. But this neuron issue, uh, what, the, what the scientists will say is, isn't it interesting that we have certain cells in our brain that seem to mirror one another's experience so that I can mirror your experience you can mirror mine? What they're saying, though, from <laughs> point of view is that I can actually feel your heart. Mm. That's real. That is phenomenologically real. When you put it in scientific language, it, in the, you know, the neuroscience of being human, it seems to anesthetize 
the beauty and elegance and potency and power of the fact that I can actually feel what you're feeling. That's so, yes, it's, it's extremely, <clears throat> extremely powerful. And I wonder if there aren't people who, if, if someone said that to them, they would run out of the room. You know, the, the, the fear of actually even being forced to feel their emotions. I think this is, and maybe I have a, a, a different experience in business than you. Do, so do you see that changing? Are more people in business able to talk about their feelings and uh, actually saying they feel someone's heart? Do you see a change there? Well, you know, I've been, doing, been in business, you know, working for big companies a long time. My, my field is in human resources. Mm-hmm. So much of my work has been about talent and how people interact. And no matter how much people may want to say, back in the day, you know, I was on Wall Street, you know, what's the role of emotions in work? I mean, please, just talk, <laughs> you know, get the money process, please. Yeah. The reality is that that's what we're working with. Mm. We're working with our emotions at work, period. Now, there may be a technical side, don't get me wrong, but when it really comes down to it, it's a very human experience that we're having. And uh, what, when you're not paying attention to that, we know what that looks like. It can become very toxic. Yes. Toxicity at work, all the toxicity at work is, is, is emotions that have gone insane. Right? <laughs> it. Well. You know? but, but I think more and more people realize that to have a healthy, inspiring um, uh, workplace that promotes well-being and health, the core issue here is to understand emotions and, and how we express them honestly and authentically and, and, and openly. And the thing about the mindfulness meditation practice is you get to know your emotions and ultimately, and this is a lot of work to be able to do this, and the, the therapists, some of the therapists in your audience will get this right away, is that emotions are really bodily wisdom in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And we, oh. really don't, we really don't relate to them that way. We relate to them as rehearsals inside our head. Interesting. And when you begin to relate to them as bodily wisdom in the present moment, they're very, very skillful and attuned in how we can become skillful in our lives. Well, so we're just up on a break, and I want to um, definitely continue this conversation because I, I think this is so important. But uh, just to remind everyone, my guest today is Michael Carroll, and his, wor- his website is awakeatwork.net. And you can also check out his books on his site or at Amazon, and we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. 
our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, I'm back with my guest, Michael Carroll, and we're discussing Buddhism and modern capitalism. And before the break, we were talking about the importance of emotions at work. And I think this really speaks to the popularity of Daniel Goleman's work, his books, um, that really do talk about emotional intelligence, social intelligence. And I really love, Michael, that you said toxicity at work is emotions that have gone insane. And I think probably most people get that right now. And then you started to talk about how you can know your emotions through your body, and um, that we have this wisdom. So I'm sure people can relate to having their stomach go into knots and things like that. So can you talk a little bit more about how we might be able to get better? And we we definitely mentioned meditation as a tool for this, to get better at feeling our bodies maybe and having them give us a clue of what's going on emotionally. Sure. Yeah, Part, one of the things, uh, one of the core issue with mindfulness, with uh, Buddhism, is this ability to uh, become have an immediate experience of what it means to be a fully human being, a full human being, being fully human. And that requires that we do this practice of mindfulness awareness meditation. And one of the things that you discover very early on in meditation is a disconnect. And, you know, I could do it right now by just being silent. Watch. You know, that for radio people, that's like what's going on. <laughs> it's <Can't> painful. Have... <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly, yes. There's like this disconnect with the immediacy of our experience. We're actually inside our heads rehearsing our experience and not necessarily living it fully. Now, as we do the practice, we begin to notice that that's not necessarily the primary experience that we're having. And a big part of that comes from being able to let go of constantly thinking about our experience and noticing that we're having it. Hmm. That ability to let go is very, very powerful. It's subtle. Typically, we don't let go. 
You know, we hold on to our point of view. We hold on to our our job. We hold on to our opinion. We hold on to our grudges. Uh, we hold on to our fears, whatever they happen to be. And I, hopefully that doesn't sound like I'm putting anyone down because we all do it. Mm-hmm. But here in the meditation, we learn how to let go and open. And that quality of letting go and opening begins to put us in touch with this quality of being present, our presence, which is very physical, very somatic. And you begin to notice, like you said, the gut feeling. Well, actually, we have feelings in our heart. There's mm-hmm. a sense of warmth and openness. When we laugh, there's a sense of joy in our throat and in our torso. Uh, there's all kinds of very intelligent tones to the way we're engaging our lives. And emotions are very, very intelligent. They're very mm-hmm. attuned to what's going on, but typically we're not with them. And the meditation helps us what we call synchronize, so mm-hmm. that we can have a synchronized presence with our thoughts, our emotions, our body, our experience. And that's kind of where the fun and the adventure begins uh, in terms of meditation and bringing that to the workplace. That's interesting because I read a book and I can't think of the exact title, but something like Living in the Wild New World. And a woman went to study in the bush of Africa to learn tracking. And it seemed like when she was really good at it, she was not thinking at all, but completely going with her bodily senses. And (laughs) And that's, yeah, and that was the key. So what it seems, the reason it's so intelligent is because it can actually take in a lot more information than we can process in our head. Is that accurate? I think it's not so much a lot more information. It's a certain kind of information. Mm-hmm. You know, we're typically in our head, our conceptual models, which are frankly quite beautiful, uh, really looks at, you know, uh, data, uh, predictability, uh, uh, sort of uh, fact-based decision-making, all great stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, uh, the bodily wisdom is about what is this experience that we're having and how can I be skillful with it? Okay. And, and then, when, you, the, when you combine this kind of well-trained conceptual with this ability to be socially intelligent and emotionally intelligent, and they resonate and they come together, that's what's called, in my world, called mindful leadership. Okay. Do you ever use or, or talk about kinesiology with regard to your coaching? Or I'm just kind of curious, because I use that as a way to read my body when I can't get my head out of the way. And for those people that maybe not know it, Kinesiology, it's kind of like muscle testing. Are you familiar with that? Um, just, just by the definition of the terms I are, but I have not you know, explored it as a field of study. I, I, there is a part to my coaching and to the meditation, which is very somatic, bodily wisdom in the present moment, how to be synchronized physically. In, in the lineage that I came from, which is a Tibetan lineage, you know, the practices of yoga, qigong, even the martial arts are, 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 are a big part of how one trains uh, so that you're 
you're somatically intelligent in your presence. Uh, and I, I think there's probably some crossover with kinesiology. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so you're saying really that the, the brain stuff is great, the, the conceptual, um, technical data processing, which a lot of my listeners work with this. And at one point I thought this is the only way to know what's going on. And then as I started to study more of the alternative ways of looking at the world and Buddhism, certainly, and I've been meditating for 10 years, um, I think it has really helped me. So you're saying it's really the combination that we need the, the left brain intellectual, conceptual, but we also need the bodily and that it can help us in business. That's just an interesting concept. Yes, and I think what happens is when you don't, when, when we, and I think this is a tendency in Western capitalism, is, and it's true for the human condition, but I think Western capitalism has unfortunately uh, perfected this misunderstanding, mm-hmm. is when you overly accent the conceptual view of life and, and not, pay attention to the, 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 the wisdom of, of being a, a human being uh, in, a, in the present moment, you can distort your experience tremendously and create enormous confusion. Interesting. Uh, and I think, to a great degree, many of the problems that we have in our modern economy is an expression of that distortion. So you, you say Western capitalism... Are people practicing capitalism with this kind of all-inclusive way of working? Yeah, I think so. You know, there's more and more there's more and more people in uh, policy positions in organizations who realize um, that you cannot just conceptually manage your experience. You know, I mean, uh, Peter Senge's work. Uh, understanding that any kind of business policy that you implement is going to have impacts globally. I mean, you know, it's just that simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you choose to conduct your business is going to affect people all over the world. And that yeah. level of connectivity has to do with this kind of presencing. It isn't just a conceptual issue. Uh, and, you know, so there are more and more strategists, business leaders, uh, policymakers who, who are understanding that it's not just a conceptual issue about mm-hmm. becoming more efficient, more profitable, more effective. It, it's about how do we live decent, open, and human lives, you know? Yeah, and I know in Senge's book, The Fifth, discipline, I think it was. Um, he talks about personal mastery, which I had never seen advocated in a business, <laughs> suggest, you know, su- suggested as a business skill, is that each of us work on ourselves as well. And I think the companies that have done this, wasn't Toyota one of the companies that used a lot of his principles and really um, succeeded very well with those processes? So, in your article, you also mention 
the work of Dr. Daniel Stern, a research psychiatrist at the University of Geneva. And he says that we are basically wired to connect to other people. So that seems logically that it would help with empathy. Um, but I think it also has an element of contrast to what we hear as the way to be successful is through competition and the, the, there's a limited number amount of resource and we have to get it before somebody else does. How do we reconcile those two? Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, well, first off, competition is not an inherently bad thing at all. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. And this ability to connect and resonate with another person is, if, if you're a competitor, you get it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to resonate with, your, with the person you're competing against or you have a blind spot that they'll take advantage of. So, you know, being able to have human connection, even in competitive environments, is, is very um, human, very, uh, it can actually make it fun, frankly. Well, and Tiger Woods was a meditator and one of the best golfers in the world at, at one time, if not still the best golfer. And so is that maybe one of the tools he used or one of the, the no, talents he had? I can't speak for him, but, um, you know, be it the Lakers or Tiger Woods or Steve Jobs or whoever, we're finding that more and more, uh, people who are excelling at what they're doing realize that a big part of this is is uh, training the mind hmm. very deliberately, very deliberately training the mind in a very specific way to be comfortable with itself. Yes, and you say in your article that meditation teaches us, or or it's sort of allows us to be perpetually curious and or that our mind is just naturally curious which I think is so important for uh, innovation can you expand on that a little bit yeah well you know it, it, it's it, all you have to do is f just for a second any human being who's listening to this uh, all you have to do is just pause for a second and you'll notice that you'll be curious about what's about to happen. <laughs> True. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mind, one of the beautiful, most beautiful parts of the human mind is it's, it's tremendously curious about its experience. Mm. And, and that, I mean, just think about when you're a kid. I mean, I, you know, just like, hey, look at that. Wow. I mean, that <laughs> freshness, that delight... Mm -hmm. Is, is perpetual. It's always available. Always available. And the ability to constantly recognize that and be actually synchronized with that curiosity and notice that that's your, the nature of who you are mm -hmm. is, uh, is very uh, 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 enriching, and it's the core issue of, of, of innovation. Mm. The single biggest yeah. thing that gets in the way of innovation is fear. And not fear from, you know, being attacked by marauders. <laughs> fear of our lives. That's the biggest obstacle to innovation is fear of our lives. That Will people feel to... that their lives are threatened if they become 
just let go of control or become like delighted and you know, uh, it was, I mean it's very human we all know about it you know what's going to happen next is this going to work mm-hmm. out you know can I pay my bills what's my bill oh, you know yeah. where's you know where, where the person that I love where were they last night right there's a constant fear that we're not able to live our lives that fear the meditation unravels oh. so, that, so that we can let it go Interesting. And you mentioned that we all have these tendencies to to have these thoughts. So we're not saying that in order to be successful with meditation, you have to block or or have it work perfectly all the time, right? You're just, so talk more about that. Like what does a daily practice look like for somebody that could be considered a successful meditator? the, The practice is really ultimately... Mindfulness awareness meditation is ultimately making friends with yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's coming home and being comfortable and at ease and confident in your own skin. And that takes time. It takes time. It doesn't happen but for some of us. It may come easier than others. Uh, you know, some people have been traumatized in life. Uh, you know, there's all, we all have our own unique intimacies. Mm-hmm. But essentially, the meditation is a very gentle, yet demanding discipline where we, over time, make friends with ourselves so that we can be comfortable in our own skin. And that, that sense of ease of presence, we begin to notice, hey, this is kind of cool. This is, this is kind of cool being alive. I mean, I'm looking out the window right now, and I can see the sun is hitting green leaves. It's like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, I get it. It's just really enjoying what's going on and and uh, and having a lot of those old thoughts and fears sort of fall away. And uh, believe it or not, we're up at the second break. I'm just enjoying this so much. It's it's uh, hard to believe we're on our second break. But uh, again, my guest today is Michael Carroll, and we're talking about Buddhism and modern capitalism. And you can learn more about Michael at his website, awakeatwork.net. And we'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. 
Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with Michael Carroll of Awake at Work. And we're talking about Buddhism and modern capitalism. And just before the break, we were talking about practicing mindfulness meditation and how it allows you to make friends with yourself, be comfortable in your own skin. And many of us have, have had traumas and losses. And the, from what you say, Michael, this practice can help make those thoughts and memories less powerful and we can actually begin to enjoy what we're seeing in the present moment and delight in things like a bird or a beautiful tree or a sunset or things like that. So I think I love the concept of of that just encouraging us and bringing that ability to work where we might be inspired by something that gives us an idea or or lets us connect with somebody that sparks innovation. So can you give some examples of maybe where you've used uh, these your coaching to help companies become more profitable um, or, or just to have better, more successful with these practices? Yeah, I mean, there's many, many examples where, where this can be applied very uh, uh, effectively. The, the issue is, and this is important, is one does not go into mindfulness awareness in the workplace from the point of view of trying to become someone else, someone who's more effective, someone who's richer, smarter, faster. It's, it's not so much about um, what you, you know, be, that is it, it, becoming someone else. It's about being who you are and becoming comfortable. So that's important. With that said, I'll give you a few examples. One of the key areas where I've seen this applied, and I know uh, with practicing attorneys who practice mindfulness, it's very, very helpful in, in adversarial negotiations. Typically what happens with attorneys particularly is, is that their job is, is to maximize their client's position, often to the unreasonable disadvantage of their opponent's. And that level of adversarial mindset is very uh, intense, frankly. Um, I'm working with some right now with an insurance company, and you know they're constantly looking for fraud, and, and it's it's intense. It's very yeah. intense. And how an attorney who when you, when an attorney practices mindfulness awareness, they're not by definition trapped in the adversarial mindset. They're emotionally able to uh, have a flexibility of mindset, which is, by the way, one of the marks of a practitioner is that you're not frozen into fixed mindsets. Mm. So you can you can negotiate more effectively because you're not frozen into your emotional stance, nor are you as easily impressed by emotional tantrums from your opponent. 
for that matter. <laughs> right. You know, so that kind of kind of perspective in terms of adversarial negotiations is very helpful uh, uh, as a practitioner of mindfulness awareness, and I've seen that work quite well for people. Um, I think also, uh, in, uh, you know, I'll think of another example. I work with physicians quite a lot uh, who, do, uh, who are researchers, and uh, a lot of what's occurring now in terms of clinical work is uh, the teams that they deal with are very, very technical, very yet dispersed. So you could have your you you could have your um, project manager in 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 the UK. You could have your uh, toxicologist in 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 Philadelphia. You could have your your uh, uh, your medical specialist in in Stockholm. And how how do you actually coordinate them? Uh, is is a very, is a big challenge globally, and this is true for a lot of professions. And what what typically you try to do in these circumstances is typically what people would do is try to control this and put in the old management. We have objectives. We have we need to achieve. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> and people don't these self organizing kind of fluid global teams don't function well that way. Right. So it requires a flexibility and an agility of mind. Mm. Uh, and being able to find new ways of working together, new ways of holding each other accountable and responsible. And uh, what I've found is often people who are or professionals and physicians and scientists who get more and more rigid in those circumstances don't succeed. And the meditation loosens up the environment, loosens up the conversation. And, and I have found with the few scientists I've worked with in those circumstances that the meditation can be very, very helpful for them personally in leading in those complex settings. Do they uh, then come up with a, a structure just through working together that, that may be totally unique? Uh, it could be, yeah. I mean, that's happened, but it, it's less. It, what happens is, is they don't hold on to a, a fixed view. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I'm thinking of an example right now. There was a commercial. Uh, the, the head of the this was a, a, a well-known brand. I won't name it. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, pharmaceutical, and the commercial guy was in um, London, and the the person I'm thinking about was in the U.S. And normally, you try to get the commercial guy to keep showing up, and they don't really show up very often. So sometimes you would get, you know, kind of angry about that. Well, you know, mm-hmm. God bless. You know, let mm-hmm. go of that. Ask mm-hmm. the commercial guy, what are the three things that you need to make sure that we meet our number? Because I'll tell you what the three things I need. You know? That You're right. Yeah. Kind of ease, right, of trying to figure out how to get people to commit and function in dispersed settings requires mm-hmm. a kind of an agility and openness to the situation. And, and perhaps, yeah, and it's less focus on the how and maybe more focus on the, the outcome. Or, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, like, come on. You can't, this top-down command and control structure of managing teams no longer works, guys. Yeah. 
you have to let itself organize. You've got to let the, the, the basic intelligence of all the pieces function in kind of fluid ways. Well, that requires an agile form of leadership, and often the, the meditation can be extremely helpful there. Yes. Yeah, and with the, just the way businesses are changing the, because of global competition, it, it, I don't think you, the leaders in a command and control setting they don't even have enough information for to to go all the way to to come from the outside all the way up the chain and then all the way back down. They've lost the opportunity, really. I think because exactly it's right. So you've changing got, too. You've got to let these team members and smaller teams function in, in in autonomous ways, but keep you know a kind of a loose kind of it's almost like a kite. You know what I mean? You got to yeah. keep it on them, but you got to let them fly. You know and. And I've even heard that rather than telling them the strategy, you just give them the goal and let them create the strategy. And many times that'll be a lot better. Yep. Yep. That's the direction it's going in. And I think that's part of why, one of the reasons why, you know, the economist had, you know, is Buddhism the spiritual underpinnings for the modern capitalism? Protestantism used to be the underpinnings for for capitalism and and. Economist is, was was posing the question: This kind of flexibility, this spiritual agility, is that mm. where we're going? And you know, needless to say, I would say yes. Wow! So that's fascinating, and I bet you there's some great research that could be done or has been done about the the way companies manage and maybe the religious background of the leadership either the original or or even current because it, it, and depending on the market but i could imagine that a company with a very fixed top down hierarchical structure couldn't survive in in a technology field or um you know other fast changing fields maybe some of the older or less competitive types of industries but you know telecommunications, um, computers, software, all of that. Yeah, I can see that Buddhism would be a much better framework. Yeah, you know, and I, I think what happened in the past, you know, and a lot of this came out of Amsterdam and out of, you know, the, how capitalism kind of developed there, is it was a very principled approach to mm-hmm. business. You know, I make a deal, and it based upon Christian values and Christian uh, principles. Uh, and emotions, well, if they kept up, fine. If they were involved, fine. If they weren't, that's too bad, because we're doing things based on principle. Well, okay. where things are going now is, yeah, we don't want to lose our principles. We still want law. We still want fairness, et cetera. But this ability to be agile emotionally, to resonate with diverse peoples, to bring in, it, things are moving so quickly that your ability to sort of adjust and adapt and include and, uh, you know, mutually decide together is, is demanding an even more subtle spiritual underpinning to the way we conduct business. Interesting. And I, I was thinking, too, when you were talking about the lawyers or the attorneys that by practicing mindfulness meditation you 
would eventually be less triggered by other people's anger or or perhaps less likely to become angry and out of control? Is that a true statement? Yeah, I think so. I think what happens, <laughs> by the way, anyone who knows me knows that I have by no means mastered this. Me <laughs> neither. Um, the, uh, the issue there is that the meditation begins to reveal what healthy emotions look like. Mm. And because of that, you can also understand better what, what's behind unhealthy emotions. And mm-hmm. you have far more sympathy with the situation than you do um, uh, insults. So insults, for example, increasingly become windows rather than snowballs. Mm. Oh, so if somebody insults me rather than taking offense to it, I have maybe even empathy or, or resonate with the person and think, boy, it's, it's really sad that they think to say that. <laughs> it's not about me, it's about them. Is that well, what you're yeah, saying? Well, yeah, I mean, it even goes further than that. And this is a, a little Machiavellian, but someone's insult actually is revealing far more about them than it is insulting you. You, you, they're actually showing you their hand in the card game. Oh, right. Because isn't it, they say that what bothers us about other people is usually things that bother us about ourselves. Is that what you're saying? Uh, kind of. But, I mean, normally if, if someone insults you, the first thing you do is you pull back, hold in, hold, hold back, right? Mm-hmm. But right. from the meditation's point of view, so what? So what if somebody insults you with, what, what, is the tree going to be any less green because of that? I don't think so. Uh, So you can begin to see that the insult is revealing what the other person's fears are, what the other person's hesitations are, where they're wounded, where they're hurt, and frankly, where we could be helpful. Right, right. So as we meditate and become more comfortable with who we are, we don't, necessarily we're not affected by other people's judgments of us because we know more truly who we are through the meditation. Yeah, it's it's not that we're not affected. Yeah, of course if someone comes up and insults you and tries to embarrass you, et cetera, et cetera, that it could hurt, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The issue is there's something else going on. A much bigger proposition is unfolding as a context for the insult. And you, you're more and more alert to that, which is, by the way, this is not a particularly some, a word, and I've used this with senior executives, and they roll their eyes, it doesn't matter to <laughs> me, but it makes us very gentle. Ah, and we just have a, less than uh, two minutes left, um, but I want to just finish that thought, because that really is interesting. Well, gentleness is very, this, this is an emotional stance where the gentleness is very sensitive. Mm. where you read the situation well. You can feel what the other person's feeling. You can see why they're angry or upset. You, can, you have a very clear picture. And I always say this, it's not so much what you do for a living that's important. It's what you see for a living. It's seeing the situation clearly. And that's a big outcome from the meditation. Well, that's a great way to wrap up. And uh, it looks like we're out of time. Michael, thank you so much for being my guest today. And I hope you'll come back and visit us again. I would love to. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. 
So next week, my guest will be Dr. G. Clotaire Rapiel, founder of Archetype Discoveries Worldwide. And Dr. Rapiel is an internationally known expert in archetype discoveries and creativity. And his unique approach to marketing combines a psychiatrist's depth of analysis with a businessman's attention to practical concerns. He's written more than 10 books on the topic, and he is in high demand as a lecturer on creativity and communication. So you won't want to miss this. For a full description of this show and access to all past shows, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parud, saying thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.